Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the library. Uh, we are super excited for our talk today and to welcome Carrie Millsap Spears to share um, her thoughts and research about Frankenstein and especially Frankenstein and pop culture. Uh, Carrie has been a faculty member in literature and composition for a long time with all of us, getting longer than we want um, to admit. Um, Carrie is our campus expert on the study of pop culture, so academic study of um, the things that we absorb in terms of even science fiction, um, all the movies, you name it, right? So this, so this is like the perfect person to bring in the conversations on how Frankenstein, the book written 200 years ago, has carried on today. So if I say Frankenstein, especially think about Frankenstein's monster, we all know who that is, even though probably many of us, most of us, have not read the original book that was written so long ago. So how does that happen? Why does that happen? What does that tell us? That's what Carrie is gonna tell us today. So Carrie, thank you for your time. Everyone, thank you for being here. Um, it, I am looking forward to this talk very much. Thanks. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Troy. Thank you um, everyone for being here today. Uh, thanks to the library for hosting this book again. Um, yes, I was here when we did this the very first time. Oh, we don't want that to happen. Um, we did this the first time 20 years ago, and it was my very first semester here on, on the campus, and I was thankful to be included, able to do some events um, as well. So um, just shout out for the library for, for doing this again. And so, yes, as Troy was mentioning about the connection between the creature and the creator in Frankenstein, I just want to let you know that you might not be familiar with the novel, but you're familiar with this all of this that here on the table. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit about this in just a minute. So if you're not reading the novel, I know some of you are reading the novel for your classes, especially with Professor Webb here. Um, but if you, no matter where you are in this conversation, today is something for you, okay? So if you're a monster movie fan, um, if you just like Halloween, it doesn't matter. There's something here for you today. So today um, we're gonna really talk about how the creator, Victor Frankenstein, ultimately becomes tangled up with the character of his creature in the popular imagination of this very famous, even if you haven't read it, novel. So this was the novel I was gifted 20 years ago when we first did Frankenstein on this campus. So you can see um, it has been well loved by me. And I have other copies of it, but I had, for whatever reason, I really appreciate this one very much. So we'll talk about that as well. Um, so. First, the slide, this slide is really kind of tell you about what we're going to do. The session is going to illustrate the genre of the novel, novel essentially first. Then I'm going to tell you a little bit about how the creator and the creature are intertwined in popular culture. And then finally, discuss some of these popular culture mashups. And as Troy mentioned, um, I studied the Gothic and um, science fiction and also popular culture in general. I'm the author of Star Trek Discovery and the female Gothic Tell Fear No and other publications on Frankenstein specifically and Battlestar Galactica and things like that. So if you are doing work in popular culture, um, let me know. I'm happy to help you with anything that you might need. Um, so to begin unraveling the creature from the creator, one thing we need to do is define the genre. And to define the genre, we really have to talk a little bit about the literary history of the novel. And the novel was first uh, appeared in 1818 when it was first published, and then was later revised in 1831. So I feel like every time I move, the mic goes off, so I'm trying to stand still. So um, in 18, 18, this is a version of the 1818 novel, 
Uh, most scholars and literary uh, folks prefer the 1818 version when they do their research. Um, when you actually read the novel for a class or if you ever find it on the shelf in the library or something like that, you often see the 1831 edition, which is this one. Um, there are reasons for that, which is a whole other presentation, which I will not go into right now, but I will say that the, the uh, plot change okay so the ending doesn't change the ending doesn't change the main characters don't change just some of the sort of sort of textual things that um, people like like me might be interested uh, that sort of thing happens uh, a little bit different from the 1818 into the 1831 so this is actually a screen grab from the Smithsonian magazine which they actually have a display of Mary Shelley's notebooks right now um, on their website and I'm happy to provide you with that link I've actually got a hot link in here right now if you need to see it um, but that's kind of what what scholars sometimes go and look at the original is held at the Bodleian Library in Oxford so today, um, one of the things to kind of think about as it's Halloween time, and you've seen this before, um, is to look about the images of this brooding monster, and they seem to be everywhere. And so here's a fraction of my own personal collection um, brought from my office, from my home. People give me as gifts. I have everything in here from SpongeBob as the creature um, to the creature in various ways. I've got the bride. I have my friend just made me that wreath for this Halloween for my door. There's a pop-up book. There's all sorts of things over there. You're welcome, welcome to take a look at anything you would like. Um, but part of the, the reason that this happens in popular culture, the way the creature and the creature get meshed together is because of the genre of the novel, and this genre is called the female gothic. Um, so the female gothic is important to talk about because it actually sort of jump-started the study of the gothic in academics um, in a lot of ways. And it began by the essay from Ellen Moore's uh, 1976 article, The Female Gothic, where she kind of talks about why this happened and how she defines it. And this is how she defines it. It's a quote, the work of women writers have done in the literary mode that since the 18th century we have called the Gothic. And so that for Mary Shelley's work and also for the work of Anne Radcliffe, who is the mother of the Gothic romance. And so that's important for us to talk about as we go through this a little bit because there's not really a romance in Frankenstein. So a lot of people well, how can it be the female Gothic without a romance? And so I'm going to kind of walk you through that a little bit. Um, other things that are important to kind of note here, too, is the female Gothic really kind of talks about the idea of terror over horror. So if you are watching uh, movies for this Halloween season and you're watching, you know, things like Freddy Krueger or the original Halloween series, those films kind of go a little bit either terror or horror, right? So something that's a slasher is horror. When they have the blood, horror. When they're being scared and hiding in the closet, terror, okay? So you kind of see that in these films and how, they, how that works. Um, but in this novel, there is some debate about what's terror and what's horror, which we'll kind of try to talk a little bit about that today as well. Um, because horror is technically what we call male gothic, and which is really kind of popular, also a Halloween season, uh, Dracula uh, being case in point. So um, those would be kind of a different one. So the trends from the gothic mode lean between terror and psychological um, terror and, and grotesque horror. 
horror. And so this is how those things work. So the mixture of terror and horror in Frankenstein kind of complicate the novel in some ways. And that's what happens in popular culture sort of forms because you get the mixture of terror and horror on screen. And then now you're going, what, what is happening? And that's part of the reason the creature and the creator kind of blend together too, as I would argue. Um, the other thing to kind of think about in a, in a female Gothic novel, um, things are actually explained through some sort of scientific method. So if you've ever seen Scooby-Doo, has anyone seen Scooby-Doo? Seen Scooby-Doo? So Scooby-Doo, the original cartoons, are very much female Gothic constructions because at the end, it's Farmer Jones, take off the mask. He's not a ghost, he's Farmer Jones who scared kids with the mask, the end. And the kids figured it out by observation, by um, going through the scientific method, try to figure out why something's glowing green or something like that, and then they figure it out. So anything that is sort of figure outable um, in this way is what we would call a female Gothic construction. And Frankenstein, I don't know if you notice, is all about science because a science creating a person, right? Creating a creature. And so, you know, some people would kind of argue that there are some superstitious elements in Frankenstein because we don't really know how the creature is made. So in the films, there's a lot of time spent making the creature. If you watch any Frankenstein film, it's at least 20 minutes. In the novel, it's a paragraph about that big. So, you know, once it translates to popular culture, it becomes kind of uh, a little bit muddied right there, but it is something that is figure outable um, for science. The other thing about Frankenstein is something we don't have is we don't have a heroine. So, but I would argue that we have three, but I'll talk a little bit about that as, as we go along. Um, the, the idea that there's not a romance essentially is part of the, the issue in Frankenstein. Yes, Frankenstein does marry Elizabeth in the novel, but that is very short-lived and Elizabeth is not a very fully you know, developed character in any way. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, the heroine survives the novel in the, in, in the female Gothic form, but there's only one person who survives the novel, um, and I'll tell you about that in just a second. Um, the birth myth is the other thing that kind of really uh, solidifies this as a female Gothic novel, um, that Shelley aims to defy mortality not by living forever, but by giving birth. And that's also a very famous quote from the female Gothic um, chapter. So let me just show you something that's kind of interesting. As we move into popular culture, um, I want you to kind of sh to, to see this. I don't know if you're aware, but the Joffrey Ballet in downtown Chicago is doing a Frankenstein ballet. And it's only going to be here from October 12th to the 20th. And um, it actually highlights some of the things that we're going to talk about as we're going along. Because in the ballet, you're going to see um, the creature and the creator and Elizabeth as a trio. And pretty soon I'm going to tell you about who the real trio uh, might be. So that um, video actually highlights the sort of 
problem between Frankenstein and his creature and leaving his creature and going on with his life and sort of abandoning the creature. Um, the, that little short clip kind of makes it look like there's the, the three um, characters of Victor, Elizabeth, and the creature. But what a lot of people don't know, um, if you only watch popular culture versions of Frankenstein, you might not know the survivor of the novel Frankenstein, spoiler alert, is Robert Walton. And he's in none of the movies except like three. And I believe there are almost 90 different Frankenstein films. So I'm not going to tell you about all of them today. So <laughs> you'll be all right. Um, so he's the sole survivor. And what's interesting about Robert Walton is that he appears in what's called the outer frame of the novel. So if you are reading the novel, I know some of you are reading the novel for classes, um, the outer frame starts with Robert Walton writing these very flowery letters to his sister, describing the landscape, describing what he's doing, describing him trying to find a ship to travel north, all these things. And he's sort of narrating this story. What you might not know if you haven't read the book um, or some people I have met um, who read Frankenstein in junior high or high school, they don't read the letters at all. Um, that has been something that I've been told by students in the past where you just start with Victor Frankenstein's narration. Um, but the letters actually kind of set the whole thing up. So Victor Frankenstein actually meets Robert Walton while Walton's on his ship. And so then Frankenstein tells Walton his story. Frankenstein tells the creature story to Walton. Frankenstein also tells the creature story about the family to Walton. And then eventually Walton meets the creature. So there's this sort of outer layer, another layer, and another layer. And there's a really complicated narration that goes on and makes you wonder who's actually telling the truth. Um, but we only know of one person who survives. I mean, there's questions if the creature survives. The reason that the creature survives in popular culture is the way the ending is of this book. Um, the creature says he's going to jump out the window and go burn himself on a fire. Um, do we know if that's going to happen? Don't know. The only person we do know um, who survives is Robert Walton. So Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from 1994 is one of the very few feature films that show you Robert Walton. I want to show you about 30 seconds of this trailer. And what's interesting about this, Walton does not appear in the trailer except for like a tiny millisecond. And if you didn't know that's what it was, you wouldn't even notice it. <laughs> Okay, so you've seen um, versions of that, I'm sure, in lots of other um, media. So what I would um, want to say one more thing about Robert Walton is this kind of illustrates some of the female Gothic, as I was mentioning to you a second ago, is the idea that there's a hero and a heroine in the female Gothic. But for Frankenstein, you have 
Frankenstein, you have the creature, and you have Robert Walton, and they take turns playing these roles throughout the novel. And so Walton survives like a heroine and goes home to his family, which kind of resets the narrative. And so we have this sort of um, normalization of the world again after this scary event. But what you think about when you think about the the um, Frankenstein operating as a type of heroine. By Frankenstein, I mean Victor. Um, and then he dies. And then Walton goes home. And then the creature um, operates as a heroine because a lot of readers, especially since the essay, The Female Gothic by um, Ellen Moyers, really kind of read the creature as female. Um, and so there is this lot of conversation about that sort of trio of characters of Robert Walton, Victor Frankenstein, and the creature. Um, Victor, you know, obviously has his love interest in his own family, um, but he doesn't really attend to them, right? His, his focus is on his creature. And so by the end of this novel, you see that these characters of hero and heroine are actually split between three characters. Um, so What's interesting, the other versions of Frankenstein, you do not see Walton at all. And sometimes you see Walton's character split among other characters, some of his characteristics given to Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, and some of the other films as well. Um, so then how do we get to popular culture and how does this happen? You know, how does the creature become Frankenstein instead of Frankenstein's monster? How does that happen? Well, most popular culture critics um, say it happens from the 1931 film Frankenstein and continues with The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. Um, and what's interesting about that and what I want to show you now is the original film 1931 actually starts with this little trailer um, before the film starts with someone coming out on stage and kind of introducing the film. When, when that happens, I'm going to show it to you in a second, the, the, um, the sort of moderator comes out and speaks about the film and actually says, Frankenstein is the scientist, says it. But it is the um, look of Boris Karloff's creature is what's here. So take a look, everything on my table. <laughs> I love this picture. Um, this is actually a still from one of the films. So it's the actor taking a break on set, um, having a cup of tea in full makeup. Um, there's been a lot of popular culture study on you know, the prosthetics in that film, the effects in the film. So if you're interested in any of that kind of stuff, a lot of that's available. But I do want to show you this because it's kind of interesting. Okay, so he even says it, that we're going to talk about the creator making a creation. But the creature is what survives from that film. And you probably don't even know that they changed the name of Victor Frankenstein in the film to Henry, which I, I've, there's, I have a thought of why, because there is a character named Henry in the novel. But um, it is kind of interesting. 
So the mad scientist part comes from these films as well, um, especially through the characterizations that happen in The Bride of Frankenstein. So that's another still from the movies. This is where the bride, actually the actress, um, is putting on her makeup for the film. And I just absolutely love that as well, sort of like a behind the scenes look. Um, if you look on my table here, you see I'm a big fan of The Bride as well. Um, but The Bride is not in the novel. So spoiler alert, if you haven't gotten that far, um, I won't uh, ruin that for you let your um, reading take you there. But the bride does not appear in the novel the way she does in the films, um, which is a pity because she's pretty amazing. And this is probably one of the best monster movies ever made. So if you ever want to watch a monster movie uh, and not be super scared, but kind of interested, I would really recommend The Bride of Frankenstein. It's, it's fantastic from beginning to end. Um, but if you haven't seen it, I want to show you um, one little quick clip. <laughs> so one thing also in that film that I think is important is the way the creature um, is created and is able to emote in that film because in the novel the creature is very smart, can speak, has you know, has feelings, wants to meet people and have relationships and have friendships. Um, in all of the other film versions, um, you don't often see that part of the creature. You often just see the creature as a monster that's going to, you know, destroy things, especially in the very first um, film, you get a hint of the creature having feelings, but he's not really able to really emote the way he does until um, the Bride of Frankenstein. And so you kind of see that. And so when she rejects him, I think as an audience member, you probably feel for him because again, it's another rejection. He was rejected by his creator and then he's rejected by random people that he meets. And then he's rejected by, you know, the promise of this relationship. Um, and so it is a, kind of a sad scene. It also is interesting. Um, these films are directed by James Whale and it is uh, kind of something else to kind of talk about. I, in addition to teaching composition um, and literature on campus, I also teach the LGBTQ humanities course. And we actually watched this film in my class and talk about the sort of querying of the Gothic that happens with that film, um, with the creation of the second doctor and the sort of the two doctors making a creature. And there's a lot of research about that film with in regards to the queer Gothic. And, you know, the queer Gothic comes out of, you know, the way that we study the Gothic now, which is in variety of ways. People study the suburban Gothic, they study the urban Gothic, they study all these different ways of looking at these kinds of novels. And this is just another um, sort of subset of it, but one that's really, really important and has added a lot to the conversations um, that go on. So, um, how and why does this continue to happen, I guess? So these films are from the 30s. Um, my response to that would be because we keep making what we fear and we keep doing it again and again and again.
okay? So I do have some of these to share with you. Obviously, I'm not gonna go through all, I believe there's close to 90. I'm not gonna go through all of them, but I'm gonna highlight a few that I think if you are interested in this stuff and you wanna see how this works, um, definitely, definitely check out some of these films. So the Young Frankenstein is a favorite of mine. Um, Young Frankenstein takes actually the 1930s films and remakes them as comedy. So there's a whole subset of the gothic, you know, called camp gothic, where the gothic is funny, which also happens in the Rocky Horror Picture Show as well. Um, but the comedy in Young Frankenstein is really kind of um, really like farcical and really far out. And they actually use some of the original sets from the 1930s films. So again, if you're interested in like material culture, like how films are made and what they are made of, um, there is definitely a lot going on in that particular film. Um, it's again, it's hilarious from start to finish and it is a um, classic. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is another one. So you have, and I also want to mention too how these films kind of cluster um, in time frames. So in 74, you have Young Frankenstein, and then you have Rocky Horror Picture Show in 1975. So they kind of clustering. And then as I show you, they kind of move together in some ways too. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I have students in my humanities class right now that are going to get to watch it today um, in part, but who have never seen it before. So I do want to show you one clip of this. So what's interesting um, about this film, if you haven't seen it, um, that is Dr. Frankenfurter who creates Rocky. So again, you see a, another version of the story and this one is obviously a musical, um, but a lot, of, a lot of fun and definitely worth it. If you ever get the chance to watch one live where you actually go and you can buy a little, um, they might sell you a paper bag filled with um, props for the film. It's just, it's just a great time where you throw toast and you have a newspaper and it's just a whole thing. Um, it's a lot of fun to do. Um, the other one on here is The Bride. Um, this stars Sting. You probably don't know who that is. Um, he was a famous musician. I don't know if he's still, is he still alive? I don't know. <laughs> um, so he, he makes, he's also, he stars as Victor Frankenstein. I shared with you a little bit about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from 1984 as well um, there. Um, Van Helsing is one you probably didn't expect to see on my list. Um, Van Helsing is really kind of a bad movie. I don't know if I can say that um, and be recorded, but um, it's, a, it's a bad film. But I, I find it really fascinating. Every time it comes on, I watch it. <laughs> I have no reason for that, except I guess maybe I like to watch bad films. But what's interesting about this film, Van Helsing is a character 
Dracula. And I think that kind of speaks to what I was trying to articulate earlier, the idea of mashing up of the male and the female gothic in these films is what kind of makes these films kind of take these odd turns away from the novel. And that's one film in particular that does that. And there's a trailer um, that I can show you. I don't know if I will. Um, maybe I will. Why not? Whatever. Um, but it starts out, the, the very first thing is like all the monsters that Van Helsing is going to hunt in this film. And it actually says the narrator of the trailer says Frankenstein, and then the creature is right there. And so it's a mashup. So I'll show it to you. Why not? You're excited about it, right? <laughs> I'm not going to show it all to you. So you see, you have the creature right with the Wolfman and Dracula, and it goes on um, with all these other universal monsters, which are, um, which is the sort of franchise that comes out of the 1930s films. So if um, you look on my uh, table, if I move, I'm going to get off my mic, well, it won't work, work. But I have a couple of things that are universal monster sort of license. And so they kind of have that grouping of monsters um, from that particular sort of franchise. And we kind of understand franchises today, Star Wars and like Marvel. This is just another one of that kind of thing. Um, another film that you might not have ever heard of, but it is a fantastic movie from 2012. And again, you can kind of see this cluster of films, 2012, 2014, 2015. Um, Frank and Weenie um, is fantastic and so some of you I don't know if you were old enough to go to see it um, I want to count 2012 um, I have a I have a child that I took to see that who was about 10 maybe and loved it because he, he lives in my house and this is the kind of stuff that's in there um, he, well, he wasn't afraid of it but there were kids in the movie crying so um, because it is kind of a sad little story but also a beautiful story but it is I think probably a close retelling of the novel especially some of the themes so I'll just show you the first like 20 seconds
So it's a wonderful film. If you um, are looking for movies to watch this Halloween season, definitely put that one on your list. Um, I, Frankenstein from 2014, um, stars Aaron Eckhart from The Dark Knight. So if you've seen The Dark Knight films, um, he, is as, he stars as the creature as action hero, which is a bizarre choice. Um, <laughs> again, there's a lot of different things. He does not look like the Boris Karloff character, but he fights and like there's this whole subplot, which is kind of muddled. Um, and then the 2015 film, Victor Frankenstein, really focuses a lot on the scientific part of this and actually brings up some of the sort of resurrection kind of conversation that happens that um, was some of the original um, inspiration for the novel. And so there's some good parts in that film, but again, it just starts to kind of, when the horror gets overpowering, I think it kind of loses the flavor of the novel because the novel is not a horror novel, even though it seems like it might be. Uh, but these films kind of up the ante on the horror and they want to make it scary somehow when this, the, the real reason it's scary is because Victor Frankenstein's the monster. And he's a man who just went to college and decided, I don't even, and I don't, really, I don't ever call him Victor Frankenstein, the doctor, because I don't think he finished college. Like, I always wonder, did he finish? Like, I think he dropped out. So um, I guess uh, that's something to kind of think about. Um, but on television, you see lots of different um, versions of Frankenstein as well. And I do a lot of work with, I do more work with television than I do with films. Um, but the 2004 miniseries Frankenstein actually has a depiction of Robert Walton. Um, it actually is a good version of Frankenstein if you ever are able to see it. Um, what's interesting in that film or that series is you see scenes that you don't see in any other films. You have the creature and the creator actually meeting on the mountaintop, which happens in the novel. It doesn't really happen in any other sort of popular culture things. Um, Showtime had a series called Penny Dreadful from 2014, which is the little gif I have here. Um, and I have actually the book, Penny Dreadful book on the table that has some of the artwork about the creatures in it and how they actually made it. So again, if you're interested in films and television and how they do like special effects and makeup and all that kind of stuff um, that's in there. One thing about this film, this creature is very emotional. <laughs> He actually names himself after a poet. Um, he, um, he spends a lot of time reading poetry and quoting poetry, and so does the creature in the novel. And so I think this, this series especially does a really good job with humanizing the creature. Um, but on the other hand, Victor Frankenstein isn't really seen as villainous as much as you know he can be in some other places. But he's, he makes three creatures in this series. Um, and that's the, the first one there. I do have a trailer for that, but I'm watching the clock, so we'll see if I'm able to show you that. Um, Netflix has a series called The Frankenstein Chronicles. That's also from 2015. Um, it's a sort of a mashup of like Victor Frankenstein meets Sherlock Holmes, kind of. Um, it stars Sean Bean from Game of Thrones. Um, it's kind of interesting, but it is pretty gory. So again, the, the horror elements are very, very, very front and center. And then I want to end my kind of conversation on television just quickly by talking a little bit about science fiction. Um, and one of the shows that really kind of brings Frankenstein into science fiction um, is called Battlestar Galactica that came out in 2004. And let me show you why. Oops. Okay. 
I usually have a Mac, so doing this has been, let's see, okay. So I don't know if you noticed that sort of creation scene. It looks a lot like all the other creation scenes we've seen, like a table with a creature coming to life on the table. Um, this creature is called a Cylon, and they come to life on these sort of tables. They're covered in goo. Um, in some of the other versions, you'll see um, the creatures, especially Penny Dreadful, the creature is covered in blood. It's a very gory scene. I do have that on that <laughs> link right there, and I've debated not to show it because it is kind of upsetting the way they depict that creation. Um, and so, but one of the things to kind of notice there is this many copies, and that's one of the terrors of Frankenstein is the idea that we can make more monsters. And so the last event that I attended was on the AI event from um, the anthropologist who was here um, to share, us, share with us a little bit about Frankenstein. And one of the things that I remember from that particular talk was this idea of how AI is kind of replicating itself um, and becoming part of our everyday culture. And I do think it kind of speaks to some of the, the worries that come out of a novel like this, especially when you put it into the realm of science fiction. Um, and science fiction has been talking about this stuff for years, um, about you know, the computer overlords or whatever taking over. Um, so it is part of, of that whole, whole thing. Um, and so what I want to um, leave you with is a couple of things. First, I actually want to share with you a little bit of the novel, and I want to read a couple of these two paragraphs. One is from Victor, and one is from The Creature because I think it's important that we remember the novel when we talk about Frankenstein and popular culture, because if we didn't have the novel, we wouldn't have the depictions of it in, in popular culture. And also I want you to see the beauty of this language and the fact that somebody who was 18 years old wrote this. Um, I think that's also important. And I wanna share with you um, Victor's feelings about his creation and the creation's feelings about himself so I'll read the first part on the, very, in the first box there. His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God, his yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set. So this is Frankenstein, speaking of his creature. And then this is the creature. I found that these people possessed a method of communicating their experience and feelings to one another by articulate sounds. I perceived the words they spoke, sometimes produced pleasure or pain, smiles or sadness in the minds and countenance of the hearers. This was indeed a godlike science, and I ardently desired to become acquainted with it. So the creature is very gentle and interested and curious. He's not the hulking, broody monster that from the first 1931 film that just grunts and has very stiff movements when he walks. Um, that's not the creature. The creature actually has a whole personality. Um, so 
when I want to leave you with this idea, when someone says Frankenstein now, I wonder what you're going to think of, the creator or the creation. Um, people use the words like Frankenfood or Frankenstein when they talk about things being um, thrust together in interesting ways, um, but they harbor negative connotations about creators. Um, in the similar way, the creator and creature have blended through popular culture, um, but one thing I'd like you to, to think about is the fact that those characters mirror each other in some ways, and then also with Robert Walton in the mix in the novel, they become a very uneasy um, trio of characters. And so I'd like to have a few minutes for questions. So I would, I'll leave you with this from <laughs> uh, Snorg Tees. I saw that yesterday. Um, it's a real t-shirt, you can buy it. Uh, my name is not Frankenstein, um, but thank you. Open up for questions. <laughs> Uh, so the the look that the general public has decided he looks like isn't actually what was intended. It's just by chance. Well, it's not what he looks like in the novel. No. Okay. In the novel, he is larger than than most humans and um, has dark hair, um, as depicted by Boris Karloff. But it, it's not a flat head. It doesn't have he doesn't have bolts on his neck. Um, I mean, he probably has visible scars from being pieced together. But none of that is really described. That that paragraph that I read is basically what's described from Frankenstein's perspective of what he looked like, and it said the skin barely covers. The muscles and the arteries so it's almost like he's unfinished in a lot of ways right from that description but in in the Boris Karloff film you know we get the the head and the the very distinctive sort of bolts um, some of the scars on the hands and then he kind of goes through this whole fire thing and he gets scarred from that and so there's like a whole there's all these different things and the way that he moves and grunts and especially in the first film in the novel the creature is very fast and agile and can do all sorts of things. Um, so, no. <laughs> so he, he's a, maybe a little bit different than that. <laughs> Other questions? I was just wondering, did you ever see like a Japanese version? I haven't. Frankenstein no. Frankenstein conquers the world. No, I haven't. Uh, they were going to make a Frankenstein versus Godzilla movie. Fun. And and then instead they used King Kong. <laughs> and uh, so at the end, King Kong gets struck by lightning and he gets stronger. Does it make sense because he's supposed to be Frankenstein, this monster? Interesting. Interesting. But uh, but I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about the. Other countries, like because uh, there's a Swedish version, Terror of Frankenstein. There's a Italian Lady Frankenstein, which is almost like pornography. And there's the Frankenstein Girl versus the Vampire Woman, the Japanese. So there's a lot of different like other countries that have really oh, absolutely. weird versions of monster. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
I've actually been a part of a, a book club that reads various versions of Dracula from other countries. And so um, it, it's definitely uh, different based on the, 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 you know, audience for the, for the books and for the films. And so it's been a lot of fun doing that, but I haven't really investigated a lot of the ones from other um, countries uh, with regard to, to this particular novel, but it's something that I might do. I, I got stuck in my sci-fi mode for, for a while, so it's kind of been where I've been for, you know, I don't know, most of my life. Carrie, do you have a favorite adaptation, something that you just really love and would recommend? Oh my gosh, that's hard. That's a hard one. Um, I guess it would depend on the audience, like for someone new to watching these kinds of films, I would say start with something a little bit accessible like Frankenweenie, um, particularly because it's not overly gory or scary or any of that stuff, but the themes are in there. And then if you like that, you know, and you like the sort of more gentle approach, um, then maybe try something like, uh, maybe Penny Dreadful is, to me, is the best representation of this, but it is a little scary. And I, I you know, if, if people are kind of sensitive to that kind of stuff, then I would say be careful because there's a lot of, like a lot of bloody scenes in that show. Um, but the creature is, I think, probably one of the best creatures, uh, representations of the best creatures that you see. Um, but, you know, if you like them funny, you know, Young Frankenstein is never, never a bad idea, neither is Rocky Horror. Um, but the original 31 and 35 films, they're good. They're, I mean, I think I love The Bride of Frankenstein, but I don't know if that would be the very first one I would recommend because it takes, because especially they're, they're slow moving, they look different because they are, are created differently um, based on the, the films themselves and the way they made movies then. So um, that's how I would, that's the things I would mention recommend. Other questions? Can I ask about the study of pop culture? Because that's something that we may not often think about. Um, if we wanted to learn a little bit more, like kind of an intro, like where would you direct us to understand kind of this area of study? Um, is a huge area of studies, it's sometimes called American studies. Um, Bowling Green State University is known for um, study of popular culture. There's a popular culture library there that you actually can go and study and work in their archives, which I've been able to do on a couple of occasions. Um, the Popular Culture Association has lots of information on their websites. Um, you know, there's pop culture scholars probably in every college and university in the country, um, internationally as well. Um, this is just a growing field because popular culture is the study of every day. Um, we experience this every day. So when you go to Walgreens later or CVS or Walmart, you're going to see all this stuff. And because it's part of our everyday life and popular culture studies is the study of everyday life and everyday people. And I think that's what makes it so important because we all can participate. No one is left out. Fantastic. Okay, well, how about a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.